listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. You can enjoy more messages like this and more with the free Courage Matters app, available in your app store. To invite Michael to speak to your group, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. Hold on to your seat and open your heart as Mike teaches us from God's Word. We are in the middle of a series called Vision for Life. This is message four in our series, Vision for Life. Now, whether you're live or whether you're visiting us through the miracle of being part of our podcast audience, when I'm done with the message, you're going to know very specifically some steps that you can take, some ways that you can respond to what you're going to hear from God's Word. We've spent some time together talking about God's vision for every life, every family, and every church. We've done that. Although we haven't exhausted it, hopefully we've whet your appetite that you're buying into God's vision for your life individually, God's vision for your family, and God's vision for this particular church. And if you're listening to my podcast, the vision for every single church. That's what we've discussed. Now we're going to talk about the mission that God has for you if you are a Christ follower, and the mission that God has for your family if your family is a Christ-following family. And we're going to talk about the mission that God has for every church that bears the name of Jesus, that seeks to glorify Jesus, that seeks to exalt Jesus. We need to understand, we need to buy into completely, fully, God's mission for the church. So this has application for your own personal life. It has application for your family, every single person in your family. And it has application for us here as the family of God. Turn with me in God's Word to Matthew, Matthew chapter 28, beginning in verse 16. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. This is good because they're obeying Jesus. Right from the beginning, they're obeying Jesus. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. A passage of Scripture, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for any length of time, if you've grown up in the church, if you're familiar with what happens in many churches, or at least what's discussed in many churches, this is known as the Great Commission. And the Great Commission is the mission that God has given to you as a Christ follower. We don't need to reinvent the mission. We don't need to try to reword the mission. We don't need to recraft it or wordsmith it. Here it is in black and white. There is no gray about it. There is no gray. This is God's mission for your life. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, this is God's mission for your family. If you are a Christ-following family, if you're leading in your family, if you're a man or a woman and you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you have children, The directive from God is that everything in your family is to be centered upon, centered around this single mission for your family. The whole is the sum of the parts. It's true when a bunch of Christ-following families get together or a bunch of Christ-following individuals get together and we gather together as the body of Christ, the church, this is our mission. 
We don't change the mission that Jesus has given us. We don't alter the mission. We don't allow ourselves to get sidetracked and derailed. This is straight from Jesus' mouth to your heart. The mission that God has clearly laid out for you and for your family and for this church. Now look, in verse 17, when they saw him, the 11, see the backstabbers out of the picture, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, he's out of the picture. So there are only 11 left, and the mission is about to take a quantum leap forward. Don't you dare think that God needs more resources, more people, to accomplish what he said he was going to accomplish. When God says he's going to do something, God's going to do it. Sometimes it is addition by subtraction. It's biblical. We see that in the story of Gideon, where they had thousands that they would have needed, practically speaking, intuitively speaking. They're going against an enemy who had people an army more numerous than sands on the seashore, and God tells them, you've got too many. What they needed was commitment. Commitment and discipleship cannot be divorced. There is no such thing as a non-committed disciple. It's an oxymoron. They've lost somebody into whom Jesus has poured for three years. Somebody who heard the very words of Jesus, saw the very acts of Jesus, had meals with Jesus. I mean, I would have loved to just see Jesus on one of those occasions, let alone 365 days in the Roman calendar, 365 days in the year times three. And what we learn from this teaching right here in Matthew 28 is that, yes, there will be some who will betray. There will be some who will leave. There will be some who won't get it even after so much has been poured into them. But the mission of Almighty God, you have to understand, I have to understand, this is not your mission it's not my mission. It's not our mission. It is God's mission that he has given to you. And he's given to me. And he has invited you. And he's invited your family. And he's invited us as families of families, as the family of God. And as a group of individuals who are Christ followers, God has said, this is my mission, and I am now recruiting you to my mission and it will not be deterred. You think God is up in heaven saying, I don't have enough people to accomplish what I want to accomplish. <laughs> when you read Matthew 28, it's like the great omission. What's not here is Jesus getting all fretful and worried and discouraged. and Oh my goodness, I, three years. I, the book of Corinthians talks about 500, the Apostle Paul's talking about 500 believers in Jesus' whole three-year ministry. They needed every single person. No, they didn't need every single person. What they needed was... What they needed was commitment. 
So the mission goes on. Remember the old song, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Hmm. Verse 17, when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Hmm. Some doubted. This seems to be something that we would want to see Jesus comment about as well. Again, the great omission in the midst of the great commission. Anticlimactic, 11 of these guys, you've invested three years of your life. That's the best seminary they'll ever be. The best seminary there ever could have been. It's three years with Jesus. I'll take one year of Jesus and give you all four years of my formal theological education. When they saw him, they worshipped him. Notice Jesus doesn't correct them, but some doubted. Don't ever make the mistake of thinking that you can't be a disciple until all doubt has been erased in you. With these 11 guys, Jesus would change the world. And some of them doubted. Can you blame them? I mean, after all, they had never seen somebody who was crucified after being brutally beaten come back to life and be so convincingly alive to the point where he ate meals with them and they were able to touch him. And he was able to build a fire. We read that in John's Gospel where Jesus had built a fire and brought some fish. Apparently Jesus had already been fishing very successfully. Don't envy Jesus. He was a good fisherman, yes. Do you understand everything that there is to understand about Jesus as a disciple? Part of what is something that needs to be understood for you and for me is that the idea of being a disciple is that you're growing. There are things about Jesus that you understand today that you didn't understand a few years ago. And believe me, take it based on God's Word. There are things about Jesus that you will one day understand that you currently don't understand. Don't confuse being a disciple with having all doubts about Jesus. All doubts about the Bible completely erased. It's not going to happen. But discipleship must happen nonetheless. A number of years ago, a famous man, he's famous now, he's 96 years old, was called to preach the gospel and proclaim the gospel, and he had a bit of a faith crisis in his own life, and he went out on his farm and took a Bible, his Bible that he had, and he laid it on a tree stump. And he walked around that tree stump talking to the Lord, and finally he uttered these words out of his mouth. He said, Lord, I know that there are things in this book, the Bible, that I don't understand. There are things that I can't comprehend, but, but, nevertheless, I will accept the Bible as your word, and I will preach it and proclaim it as you've called me to do. And from that day forward, William Franklin Graham whom we know as Billy Graham, went forward to be one of God's most mighty 
vessels and instruments for the proclamation of the gospel and the building up of the body of Christ that all of history has ever known. Don't confuse doubt with discipleship. It comes with the territory. Don't let that derail you. There's a difference between doubt about all the things that we might come to, we will one day come to know about Jesus. Don't let something that you're uncertain about derail you from following Jesus, obeying Jesus, being committed to Jesus in those things, in those areas that you know are true. Verse 18, Matthew 28, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, interestingly enough, the word Trinity might not appear in the Bible, but it's taught throughout all of the Bible. Jesus is saying, baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. It would have been a blasphemous thing for Jesus to have put himself on equal footing with the Father, and a blasphemous thing for Jesus to have put the Holy Spirit on equal footing with the Father, unless it was true. And we know that Jesus never lied. Jesus never lies. And so here again we see a teaching from the Word of God, even though the word Trinity might not appear, the concept of the Trinity, it's just a million-dollar word that we use to help us understand three persons in one God, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not existing different ways at different times. They're all there at the same time, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And Jesus says, go and make something out of your life. Go and make something out of your family. Go and make something with this thing I'm going to birth on the second chapter of Acts as it's recorded on the day of Pentecost, this thing called the church. Go and get busy for me. Do what I have done with you for three years. Yes, there are backstabbers and betrayers. Yes, I understand that you doubt, but don't let your doubt and don't let the backstabbers and don't let the betrayers derail you from my mission. It's my mission that I'm giving to you. I'm inviting you to join me in my mission, Jesus says. That's what his call is for you individually. That's what his call is, first and foremost, for your family. That's the mission for your family. We will one day give an account, mothers and fathers, single or married. We will give an account for how well we discipled our own children. And we will most certainly give an account as the body of Christ, as the church, for how well we accomplished what Jesus said we should accomplish, what we must accomplish, what everything in our lives must be centered upon and revolve around the mission of God. It's a great commission. You know, you could make the mistake of thinking that education is the same You can make the mistake of thinking that education is the same as application. It's not. You could confuse sympathy for action. It's not. You might even think knowledge is the same as commitment. It isn't. Knowledge is not the same as commitment. Education is not the same as application. And sympathy or affinity 
or empathy with the Great Commission, being aware of what the Great Commission is, is no substitute for action. On November 7, 1918, in Charlotte, North Carolina, a boy was born into this world who grew up to be a mighty, mighty man of God. And in his 39th year, he was speaking to a group of Christians at a convention about a problem that the world was facing in 1957. And William Franklin Graham, Billy Graham, had these words to say to that group of people, and I'd like us to pause for a moment and go back in time and listen to Billy Graham speaking in 1957, these potent words that were true then, they're true today, and they'll always be true. Let's listen. The world tonight is engaged in a titanic struggle. And there is a philosophy that is sweeping the world like fire called communism that many people believe to be a Christian heresy. Lenin began in 1917 by going across part of Germany to Russia with 40,000 men and today, today, they control about 800 million people and are penetrating every part of the world and they are challenging the Christian church as it has never been challenged before and they are teaching us some lessons and I would to God that we Christians learn the lessons before it's too late. And the great lesson that they are teaching us tonight is self-denial discipline, dedication, and commitment. And the New Testament is filled with it, but we have forgotten New Testament Christianity and communism has to come and teach us something of the things that Christ taught us. I have in my hand a letter that was written by a communist student at an Eastern University after he had gone to Mexico to be and became a communist in Mexico, writing to his fiancée, breaking off their engagement. Here is in part what he said, and this was given to me by the minister of the Presbyterian Church in Montreat, North Carolina, where I live. And here is what it says. We communists have a high casualty rate. We are the ones who get shot and hung and lynched and tarred and feathered and jailed and slandered and ridiculed and fired from our jobs and in every other way made as uncomfortable as possible. A certain percentage of us get killed or imprisoned. We live in virtual poverty. We turn back to the party every penny we make above what is absolutely necessary to keep us alive. We communists don't have the time or the money for many movies or concerts or T-bone steaks or decent homes and new cars. We've been described as fanatics. We are fanatics. Our lives are dominated by one great overshadowing factor, the struggle for world communism. We communists have a philosophy of life which no amount of money could buy. 
we have a cause to fight for, a definite purpose in life. We subordinate our petty personal selves into a great movement of humanity. And if our personal lives seem hard, or our egos appear to suffer through subordination to the party, then we are adequately compensated by the thought that each of us in his small way is contributing to something new and true and better for mankind. There is one thing about which I am in dead earnest, and that is the communist cause. It is my life, my business, my religion, my hobby, my sweetheart, my wife and mistress, my bread and meat. I work at it in the daytime and dream of it at night. Its hold on me grows, not lessens as time goes on. Therefore, I cannot carry on a friendship, a love affair, or even a conversation without relating to this force which both drives and guides my life. I evaluate people, books, ideas, and actions according to how they affect the communist cause and by their attitude toward it. I've already been in jail because of my ideas, and if necessary, I'm ready to go before a firing squad. I want to ask you tonight, do you have that much dedication to the Lord Jesus Christ? I tell you tonight, Christ demanded no less. Show me one verse in the Bible where our Lord demanded any less of those that follow him. Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe some that I have commanded you. No. Why is it that we live our lives? Why is it that in our families? Why is it in the church that it's as if this is what the Bible says? That it's as if that's what Jesus taught. When actually Jesus said, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. All means all. See, and you've got to understand individually, you've got to understand in your family, we've got to understand as a church that the first aspect of the Great Commission is to be a disciple. We have no business, no right to go and try to make somebody else something that we aren't. And brothers and sisters, one of the things that I think could be said about Christianity in the 20th and the 21st century in the United States of America, to our detriment, is that if we were not one thing when it comes to Christianity, it was that, and it is that, we are not committed. We seem to have divorced commitment from discipleship. Now, in the 1950s, it was communism. In the 1960s, it was communism. In the 70s, and in the 80s, and even to this day, communism continues to pose a great threat and a great example of what it means to be committed and what it means to come against Christianity. But today, we are facing, you and I today are facing a new threat. And we're being taught what commitment means by someone and people 
and a thinking, a way of thinking, a philosophy, a worldview that is other than Christianity. And it can be summed up in one acronym, ISIS. Someone wrote a blog who used to be a Muslim. And they wrote a blog post. I'm keeping their name anonymous on purpose, but the name of this post is Why I Left Islam. And here's what they have to say. There are no moderate Muslims, just Muslims. There are Muslims of varying submission and commitment to Islam, but those who are not 100% committed in accordance with the Quran, the Hadith, and Sharia law are defined specifically in the Quran, the Hadith, and Sharia law as apostates from the faith and deserve to be killed if they refuse to return. Those persons who refer to themselves as quote-unquote Muslims have a religious obligation to Islam 100%, nothing less. Those quote-unquote Muslims who either fail to or refuse to engage in jihad to spread Islam throughout the world are apostates, not quote-unquote moderate as the term is socially defined, and I would say as it's politically correct to use that term today. Islam and Sharia law does not deal equitably or equally with non-believers. Non-believers may not act as witnesses in any legal proceeding involving Muslims. A Muslim woman may not marry a non-believer. Non-believers in Islamic countries are treated as inferior beings relative to Muslims. In Sharia law, there are distinctly separate laws dealing specifically with non-believers. My family, friends, and I left Islam because of the way so many Muslims are pushing their beliefs on society. That's what jihad is, by the way. And wanting to change to Sharia law or interfering in the lives of others by praying in the streets, covering faces which is not safe for the rest of us. We need to be able to identify people, and because Islam teaches that they are the only real faith. I know that it's not politically correct to speak so clearly and to identify what Islam teaches. I understand that. I know that some might say that I am a hater or that those of us who expose the reality and talk about the real truth could be considered haters. But I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 12, verse 9, that I think speaks to this issue. Because what we seem to be failing to understand in the body of Christ, what we seem to be failing to understand in our families, what we seem to be failing to understand individually is that commitment and discipleship go hand in glove. There is no such thing as a disciple who is not fully committed. Communism is changing the world because of the commitment that began decades ago. ISIS is changing the world because of the commitment and the dedication, the unflinching dedication that they have to the Quran and the Hadith and to Sharia law. And just this past week, 60 of your brothers and sisters in Syria 
were kidnapped by dedicated, committed Muslims. And if most of them are still alive, we know that at least they are probably suffering, perhaps at this very moment of our hearing, at the hands of those radicals who are doing all that they can to try to get them to recant their faith in Jesus Christ. Romans chapter 12, verse 9 says this, Let love be genuine, abhor or hate what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Abhor or hate what is evil. What is evil is any system, whether it's political, whether it's theological, whether it's worldly, whatever it might be, any set of beliefs that forces people against their will, contrary to the teachings of God's word, to bow down and worship and serve a God who is not the true and living God. Anne Voskamp wrote a book that you would do well to read. It's a bestseller for a good reason. She wrote a book called 1,000 Gifts. Now, interestingly enough, she's Canadian. As my wife is Canadian, she's a wife of a pig farmer. But she's known especially because of her book, 1,000 Gifts. And she has a blog that she writes, and recently she had David Platt be a guest blogger on her blog that she writes, typically, David Platt, if you might not know it, is a pastor. He's a leader in the Southern Baptist Convention. He's only 35 years old, and he wrote the book, Radical. And in his blog post, he said this, We live in a unique time in Western culture when the moral landscape is rapidly changing. We have many opportunities to stand upon and speak about divine truth. We must not let this moment pass. He went on to write Elizabeth Rundle Charles commenting on Martin Luther's confrontation of key issues in his day, says, and I quote, it is the truth which is assailed in every age which tests our fidelity. If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I may be professing Christianity. End quote. He went on to say, just decades ago, Francis Schaeffer wrote, we as Bible-believing evangelical Christians are locked in a battle. This is not a friendly gentleman's discussion. It is a life-and-death conflict between the spiritual hosts of wickedness and those who claim the name of Christ. But do we really believe that we are in a life-and-death battle? Do we really believe that the part we play in the battle has consequences for whether or not men and women will spend eternity in hell? Where is the clear voice speaking to the crucial issues of the day with distinctively biblical Christian answers? May this not be said of our generation. You've been listening to the Michael Anthony Bible Teaching Podcast. We'd love to hear how this message impacted you. To share your story, visit CourageMatters.com and click on the Your Story tab. If you enjoyed this message, you'll love Michael Anthony's Courage Matters podcast, where he focuses on leadership, relationships, and world events. To learn more, visit CourageMatters.com. 
In the meantime, keep looking up. There's no place else worth looking. <laughs>